name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. Last year ended with a pretty significant policy development. On December 13th, the US Securities and Exchange Commission voted to adopt rules that would require increased clearing of certain cash US Treasury securities and repo transactions. Given the pivotal role that US Treasuries play in keeping the wheels of the global financial system turning, this is a change that will clearly reverberate across markets. Under the SEC rules, the clearing requirement will take effect in two stages, starting with cash transactions from December 31st, 2025, followed by repos from June 30th, 2026. The SEC believes these changes will make the US Treasury market more competitive, efficient and resilient. In particular, proponents think increased clearing will make the Treasury market more resistant to liquidity shocks, like the one that occurred during the dash for cash in March 2020. On the other hand, critics say increased clearing will come with costs due to clearing and legal fees, margin requirements and potential systems development, which could actually cause some participants to scale back their activity in this market. In this episode, we talk to someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the causes of the recent bouts of illiquidity in the US Treasury market, along with potential solutions like clearing. Here with me is ISTA CEO Scott O'Malia. So Scott, can you tell us about our guest? Sure, I'll be talking to Daryl Duffy, the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management and Professor of Finance at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Now, Daryl won't need any introduction for many of our listeners. He's authored a number of influential research papers on important financial topics over the years, including swaps clearing, financial market reform, bank resilience, and market liquidity. Now, more recently, he's written several papers on treasury market structure and liquidity, including on the impact of a reduction in dealer balance sheet capacity. I'd also like to get Daryl's view on another highly topical issue, the U.S. Basel III Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. We conducted an impact study as part of our response to the consultation, which showed that capital for bank trading book activities will rise significantly as a result of these rules. So I'd like to get Daryl's thoughts on whether this will further constrain the ability of banks to act as intermediaries in financial markets. That sounds super interesting and, as you say, super topical. So let's get started. Daryl, a very big welcome to The Swap. We're really pleased to have you join us. Pleasure to be here, Scott. It's nice to talk to you again. Now let's talk about U.S. Treasury markets. This is a big topic. Mr. Gensler has finalized his rule, but let's back up a step. The U.S. Treasury markets have experienced a series of liquidity stresses in recent years, notably the dash for cash in March of 2020. Your research points to a lack of dealer balance sheet capacity as a key factor reducing the ability of dealers to intermediate this market. Now, given Treasury issuance is at a record high and could go even higher, all the way up to $46 trillion by the end of 2033. This isn't a problem that's going to be going away anytime soon. So let's start off. Can you talk us through the research and explain why dealer balance sheet capacity is so important to this market? It's critical, Scott, that some large additional intermediation capacity is provided to the market. The dealers are just not big enough anymore to do that. Their balance sheets have barely kept pace with GDP, actually fallen a little bit short of GDP growth since the financial crisis. And in that same time span, the quantity of treasuries outstanding has more than tripled. So basically, the market is getting too big for the primary dealers to handle. And it's not easy to see where more primary dealers will come from. So something needs to be done. 
you know, I've kind of asked policymakers, is this a concern? And they say, well, this is a deep liquid market. It'll get sorted out. Do you kind of share that view or do you think action might be necessary to, or at least some recognition that that this could be a problem if trajectories of debt continues to rise? Well, the way the uh, official sector puts it, it's a question of resilience. I mean, this is the deepest, most liquid market in the world on, let's say, 990 days out of a thousand. But every now and then, there's a hiccup, and you don't want hiccups in the world's most important security market. The last time that happened, you alluded to in March of 2020, when the World Health Organization declared COVID to be a global pandemic. Such a large flood of demands for liquidity hit the dealers that the normally deep and liquid U.S. Treasury market was simply dysfunctional, even in the words of the official sector. So one of the consequences of dealers being less able to provide intermediation services is the potential for, of course, increased central bank intervention, some sort of a backstop. And we certainly saw that during the dash for cash, which was appropriate. It's not a criticism. When the Fed purchased huge volumes of Treasury securities, do you expect central bank intervention will be a more regular occurrence during these periods of volatility and stress going forward? Well, I hope not, because that's a last resort. But when it's needed, yeah, I do expect them to be there. But I would suggest that the official sector can do a lot more than simply wait for the next crisis and then pour on central bank purchases. There's a lot of work that's ongoing and a lot more that can be done to improve regulation and the capacity of the existing dealers to handle these floods of volumes and ways to get around the limited balance sheets of the primary dealers and go for all-to-all trade. Capital requirements are a key driver of balance sheet capacity, and these are set to increase further with the implementation of the U.S. Basel III endgame rules according to results from an industry impact study conducted by ISDA, market risk capital would increase between 73 to 112%, depending on the extent to which banks use internal models. That's on top of earlier significant increases. We seem to be making the banks more and more bulletproof, but it's meant the system has become more susceptible to liquidity crunches in the event of market shocks. Is there a balance to be struck here? That's a terrific and complex set of issues. In fact, I challenged my PhD students in December with a final exam that tested this exact question. To what extent will higher capital requirements reduce market liquidity? First, let me say the way that capital requirements are applied is just as important as the quantity of capital requirements. So, The supplementary leverage ratio rule, for example, is extremely hard on market liquidity because it forces the large banks to have capital against even reserves, against central bank deposits, which have no risk, and against relatively lower risk treasuries and repos. And that just dampens liquidity in the market totally unnecessarily. You could just eliminate the SLR and increase risk-based capital requirements correspondingly and get a much more liquid treasury market, among other markets, without raising total capital held by the banks. So I'm, I'm an advocate of improving the form of capital requirements. I'm not worried about capital requirements going higher overall because I think there's ways to mitigate that problem. There is going to be a transition issue, though. As soon as capital requirements 
go up with the Basel III endgame. For an interim period of time, I expect market liquidity to diminish. So what was the uh, outcome of the PhD analysis? Higher capital will not have an impact or will have an impact? That's a great question, Scott. I asked two questions on my final. One was, if you have a banking system with high capital requirements that are already being met by the banks, will you have more market liquidity or less market liquidity than you would with a banking system with lower capital requirements? The students got the correct answer. A system that's already well-capitalized provides more market liquidity. The second question was, if the Fed raises capital requirements, what will happen as soon as they raise them? And in that initial period of time where the banks are adding capital, they will be more conservative about offering balance sheet to their customers, and market liquidity will worsen until the banks finally get to the higher level of capital. Well, as you noted, this is an extraordinarily complex issue. That is that we've advocated for a very risk-based approach, which I think is consistent with your recommendations on SLR, slapping an overall increase that is not risk-specific or relevant to the product really doesn't help that in some respects. There's a lot of nuances to this. We're not going to go into it in great detail on this podcast, but I think getting the details right on this and making sure that we're looking at it through a risk lens and making sure we dial in the risk appropriately is pretty critical. I totally agree, Scott. This is a key element of improving treasury market liquidity and the liquidity of markets more generally. Now, in December, the SEC adopted a rule changes that would require increased clearing of certain cash, U.S. Treasury securities, and repo transactions, which it thinks will help make the treasury market safer and more resilient. This is the same narrative that we used when we did swaps regulation back in 2010, 11, and 12. More clearing is safer. Is that the same for the treasury market? What's your view here? Will clearing of treasuries meaningfully free up dealer balance sheet capacity? Yes. The answer is yes, unequivocally. It will also add resilience because it will reduce counterparty risk, which is the main purpose of central clearing. So I applaud the SEC for pushing through its proposal. I think there will be some increase in costs on a daily basis, but the ability of the market to absorb giant demands for liquidity under stress will be vastly improved and the likelihood of a big accident in the clearing and settlement of treasury trades will go down. And that's good. So we have a a treasury market largely cleared at the dealer level, but the client level, not so much. Any comments on the SEC's final rules? Did it end up where you thought it would end up? Yes and no. They followed through on basically a very broad mandate for clearing of repos, repurchase agreements that are used to finance treasury transactions. But they decided to nip and tuck on the central clearing of cash securities trades, where you actually buy and sell treasuries. And I didn't have much of a hint that they were going to do that. There was also a little bit of a surprise to the positive, in my view, that they gave a nice long runway of time for the market to get set to do this. There's a lot of operational work, onboarding, registration, legal requirements, checking the the pipes, making sure it all works. And I thought the phasing in was very smart. I understand where they're coming from, and I I think overall it's a major step forward. I think we're pretty pleased on the timeline, and I think you're absolutely right when it comes to the implementation. We've seen swaps clearing 
in which we already had well-established clearing already. And then we had non-cleared margin cleared in the swap space, which took considerably longer. And it had all of those same features that you talked about. We needed new standard documentation to reflect the new regulation. We needed to have counterparty relationships that were done through custodians. There's a lot of operational, just getting all of the people, the counterparties wired connected to make sure that they could post margin on a timely basis to the correct authorities and entities was is key. And we do think this looks a lot like the non-cleared margin space. So when we think about implementation, that's one of the things we advocated for is to do this in a very kind of deliberate manner so you can keep all of the operational challenges ahead of you. There are just a lot of people involved in this. And we think that preparing for that work early will be uh, will be essential. Yeah, very smart. And it worked out pretty well in the swap market. And I'm optimistic it'll work out well. It worked out well not only in terms of safety and soundness, but also the market did not get less liquid. If anything, it's more liquid now than it was. Let me ask kind of a risk question. And the relationship between the cash products and the repo you kind of indicated that they were a little more cautious on the cash. Do you think they have the risk? We were talking earlier about the risk exposure. Do you think they have the risk right on this one? Well, cash securities trades are more risky than repos, but it's a much smaller market. There's now roughly $4 trillion a day of repo transactions. It's enormous. Whereas the cash market is under a trillion a day. I think they got the biggest market where transparency, leverage, margin on that scale was probably most critical to get done. And on the cash security side, well, there are still things coming down the pipe. If the SEC expands its dealer registration requirements as expected, all the new dealers will be required to centrally clear their cash trades. So there's some interaction effect there that if you're a proponent of central clearing like I am, are are going to be beneficial and fill some of the Gap, not all of it. There'll still be some levered firms that won't be centrally clearing their cash trades. But overall, as I said, it's a it's a big step forward. I think the policy recommendation was if it's $25 billion over a three-month period, then you could be considered a dealer. If we think about swaps clearing in this context, we had dealer rules and the buy side didn't really show up as dealers. One or two firms actually signed up as swap dealers. Do you think we're going to have the same result here, or do you think people will exit this market in a dealing capacity or get below that threshold of 25, or maybe they change it, whatever the, the outcome may? Do you think people will change their behavior to avoid the regulation like the swaps market? Well, first, I think you hinted it depends on whether they finalize that in the final rule. And I'm slightly optimistic that that won't be, that is, that quantity threshold won't be in and of itself a sufficient criterion to be required to be a dealer. I don't know whether they're going to go ahead with that. Let's say it's a coin toss, but I think there's a chance, given the amount of pushback on that, that you can see in the comment letters from everywhere, that the SEC may rethink that quantity threshold on its own is going to be sufficient to be required to be a dealer. But of the firms that are newly captured, by the requirement. I do think they are going to change their behavior somewhat. First, they'll be required to provide reports on everything they do, and they'll also be required to meet capital requirements, which will be more onerous. In fact, I sent my own comment letter on why I think the new capital requirements for dealers, while 
one might think it's a good idea in principle for every dealer to be well capitalized, and I do, there are elements of the capital requirements that are going to reduce the amount of capital committed by some of these firms. Let me explain if it's okay, Scott. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So absolutely large active firms that act as dealers should be required to meet reasonable capital requirements. And the capital ratios are not that onerous, but there's a standing rule in the capital requirements that says if you contribute capital to your government securities dealer, it has to remain in that firm for a year before it will count towards meeting its capital requirements. So that will be punitive for some of these firms that have different trading businesses for, you know, if I were running one of these multi-siloed trading businesses where I have commodities or equities or FX or governments, I would think carefully about downstreaming a lot of capital into the government securities dealer once it's required to be registered, if I know that it has to stay there for a year. So I might downstream less capital. Some of these firms have said they might just pull out of the market. I'm a little less pessimistic about that, but I think they might, they might be less likely to provide as much capital to their government securities dealers. Well, this goes to the kind of the original question. We want this to be the deepest, most liquid safe market, of course, and, you know, raising capital rules and the impacts on dealer balance sheets. Similarly, if you impose new dealer requirements on buy-side firms that may leave this business. Two of those things are kind of working counter to the goal of market liquidity here. And that's why I think everybody's really fascinated to see what the ultimate outcome of these regulations. Yes, the SEC's made some accommodation on kind of the implementation, but the capital rules and the dealer rules are going to be really, really important in terms of market liquidity here. So, It's an interesting experiment, other than the fact that it is a huge, important market that we're experimenting with. So we'll be all interested to see how this plays out. It sounds like I'm making light of it. It's not. It's a very serious matter because, A, it's the financing government securities market, and B, it is one of the most important markets worldwide. Yeah, I agree with you. I wouldn't want the authorities, the SEC and the other members of the official sector who regulate this market to go in the other direction to say, well, we need more liquidity, so we're not going to worry too much about capital requirements or central clearing or dealer registration. I'm all in favor of those, including the thrust of the new SEC's dealer registration rule. I just think it needs to be done efficiently and carefully so that you maximize the amount of capital provided and get the safety and transparency that these rules are going for. And in some cases, there's a trade-off. In this case, I think you can get most of what you want without making a big trade-off. Well, we'll see. Certainly, we want to make sure that this remains a healthy, vibrant market uh, going forward. Now, earlier you highlighted all-to-all trading, and I want to come back to that as another market structure change that could increase the intermediation capacity of the market, assuming they we just discussed the dealer rules and they still are in the market. What needs to make this a reality? What are the challenges with this proposal, and, and will all-to-all trading actually increase liquidity here? Well, first, uh, the challenge is, will the market on its own organically develop all-to-all trade? I don't think the official sector should uh, put its finger on the scale in terms of requiring all-to-all trade. I think that could go wrong. They could get the rules wrong, or they could get it right now, but then they would become inflexible and not adapt to the development of the market. 
But I'm still a proponent of all-to-all trade, not as the exclusive method of trading in the market. It's going to be a dealer-intermediated market for the vast bulk of the of the quantity of trades for a long time, even if you had all-to-all trade. But I think as a additional source of intermediation, it's quite promising. And that on the back end of, of some of these rules, like central clearing, the hurdles to getting all-to-all trade will come down somewhat because market participants will say, well, gosh, I already had to spend the costs of getting set up for central clearing. If a trade platform operator comes along and says, you're doing central clearing anyway, you might as well just trade directly on our platform and then your trade will go right through to the central counterparty. I think that would be enticing for some market participants. Market access had some success with the corporate bond RFQ to all protocol. That's request for quote to all. That's an all-to-all protocol. And I think that would be the first one in the U.S. Treasury market to succeed for off-the-run securities. Now, who's going to offer it? Would it be market access? Would it be TradeWeb, Bloomberg? Hard to say. It would also require some cooperation from some of the dealers who would be wanted to post quotes on those platforms because buy-side to buy-side is nice in principle, but you still need dealers to offer quotes. So will it happen? I don't know. But I think there's a much better chance of it happening after these rules are implemented. Terrific. Now, your recent research has focused on treasury markets, resiliency and bank failures. So what's next on your research outlook and what things you're going to be focusing on? Well, I started a new project with collaborators at the New York Fed on treasury buybacks, which is another way to support market liquidity, where the treasury department itself can step in and provide liquidity by buying off the runs and financing those off the runs with on the runs. And that could be a win for the taxpayer because you're buying cheap, selling rich into the on the run market. The off the on the run spread is sometimes quite quite rich and it will also benefit market liquidity. The question that we're addressing in our research is how well will it work and how much of it is the right amount to do if you're trying to improve liquidity and save taxpayer expense. Because you can imagine, Scott, that if you, let's say, bought a lot of the off the runs and there were only a few, you know, let's say a third of them left in the market, I don't think the treasury would go that far, but if it did, then the remaining third would be even more illiquid. And so the trade-off has got to be somewhere in the middle. The Treasury Department has announced its plans for this year, and they're going to start very modestly with low double-digit billions of buybacks a year. So let's see how it works out. Now, I'd like to finish by finding out a little bit more about you. Did you ever consider a career in financial services or public policy, or has academia kind of always been the aim? And I know you've had significant impact on both financial services and policy from academia. So that's, you know, you've kind of hit the trifecta, but was it always going to be uh, Professor Duffy? Scott, you didn't warn me you were going to talk about me personally, but, you know, I'm always excited about what's going on in the marketplace and in policy circles. And I try to stay in touch with people like yourself to understand what are the big issues, what are the possible solutions to those. I'm a big fan of improving the quality of our financial markets. But I've always taken it from the perspective of an academic because that gives me the ability to focus on the ideas and not to worry about being accused of having a conflict of interest or an axe to grind. 
So it's a very nice place to, from which to work. Academia, the next time you come out to Stanford, I'll walk you around campus and convince you of what a terrific place Stanford University is as a place to work. So I'm not really uh, thinking about going anywhere else than staying right here. Well, you know, over the years that we've known each other and worked together on these important policy questions and financial services, you've been terrific, uh, always good-humored, always data fact-driven. So we've greatly appreciated your contribution to making our rules better, well-considered, and fact-based. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you, Scott. I've always valued the opportunity to learn from you, both when you had your own official sector role and now in your role at ISDA. It's, uh, it's great to know you and to be able to chat with you about these important issues. Terrific. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the time. You've been a great guest, and thanks for coming on to The Swap. Thank you, Scott. Well, Scott, I said in our last episode of 2023 that Treasury clearing would be a topic that we'd be talking about again and again on The Swap in 2024. And here we are, the first episode of the year, and it's been a central focus. We also covered another meaty topic that will likely run and run, the US capital rules. Well, that's right. And as we discussed on the podcast, we need to think about the objectives of both of these and to make sure that they're aligned and risk-based. The Treasury clearing rules are intended to increase the resilience of the market to try to ensure that there's sufficient capacity to absorb the mountain of Treasury issuance that we see coming in the next couple of years. For some time now, increased central clearing has been a key priority for regulators, initially focused on derivatives. However, elements of the Basel III proposal will increase the cost of client clearing unnecessarily, in our view, which would affect the willingness of clearing members to take on more client business. So we really need to think hard about how these various policies interact with one another to ensure that we achieve what we want to achieve, safe, resilient markets. Absolutely, a fascinating discussion, but we're going to have to call time. If you want to read all 168 pages of ISDA's response to the US Basel III proposal, it's on our website, so go take a look. While you're there, take a look at our agenda for the 2024 AGM in Tokyo. Early bird rates run until February 16th, so don't delay. Sign up today. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.